Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. I am your host, Rohati, coming at you from Treaty 7 lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We are in the midst of season six, and the theme for season six is deconstruction. It's all the hot rage right now. In the spheres of social media, you are familiar with the various hashtags of deconstruction, and most likely you've heard of the hashtag Exvangelical. Well, I invite the creator, the founder, the first person to use Exvangelical back in 2016, Mr. Blake Chastain. This series on deconstruction is one to help those who are filtering and processing through their past church experiences, wondering if there is a Christianity worth reclaiming. I don't know what your experience is, but my hope is that through this series and this season, you will be able to capture some pieces worth reclaiming and to help you along the journey of processing some bad experiences in your Christian or church experience. Blake comes to us from just outside Chicago, I believe. He is a writer and a podcaster. He has two podcasts, Powers and Principalities and the Exvangelical Podcast. He's also a writer with a newsletter called The Post-Evangelical Post. I think there's a joke somewhere in there. And then this year in 2022, I believe, coming from Convergent will be his book. Speaking a little bit about the life and times of the ex-evangelical movement and the hashtag and his own story. So that's what we talk about in this podcast. In this episode, we draw his story into the forefront, but also talk about the trends around ex-evangelical, past, present, and maybe what's in store for the future. Hey, before we jump into the podcast, don't forget you can support this podcast by liking it, by sharing it. Sharing is always the greatest way to tell all your friends about the ideas you've heard on the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast. This is a part ministry out of Cypher Church, which is my church here in Calgary, but we also do online stuff as well, given the craziness that remains in the global pandemic. I invite you to connect in, find me online at Rohati, and you can also support the podcast by visiting rohati.com and just checking out the links I appreciate you listening. I appreciate the notes that you send in. So if something resonates with you or you'd like to see a particular topic discussed here on Faith in the Fresh Vibe, don't hesitate to write in. You could even send snail mail. That'd be really neat to get some letters. The address is somewhere on the website. Without further ado, thanks so much for subscribing, for being here. We'll jump into this fascinating conversation of internet history with Blake Chastain. Welcome, Blake, to the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast. I am so excited to have you because there's going to be, in, in the land of social media, there is some history that you can draw us into around ex-evangelical. Is that right? Ex-evangelical. Ex- right. Which yeah. one am I? Y- either, one, either one works. <laughs> well, which hashtag should I be using? Because one has the oh. extra E 
And oh man, we've already as far as the as far as the <laughs> as far as the hashtag, I think the one that is used more often is the one with without the extra e, so exvangelical. Yeah. <laughs> um, good morning, America hasn't called you yet to come on to talk about uh, the launch or the coining. Um, I don't know. Does the internet send you? some type of acknowledgement or award <laughs> of, of when these things, when hashtags are coined? No, no, not really. I mean, I mean, uh, Twitter won't even verify me. It used to be something that was listed <laughs> on, like, if you are widely attributed to, you know, having, having uh, played a part in some sort of hashtag related uh, community or what have you, that used to be uh, something you could get verified for, but not anymore. <laughs> it's been a lot of years so, since she could get verified. Yeah, they they opened up the applications earlier this summer, but even with the new uh, guidelines, it's still not something I that not they've. Know that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, it it is sort of an interesting thing, right? Like we all use social media, and it's sort of um, the the ways in which things like hashtags get um get credited or not credited or or just how they spread uh is really really interesting so most people who use it there's a very very high chance that they don't know who i am <laughs> yeah, you know sure. like because they're there are folks with much larger um audiences on on any number of platforms that use the hashtag um but it it really started back in 2016 um, and has grown far beyond what I ever would have thought. So, the growth of that 2016 that's uh, that's longer than I uh, have known about the hashtag, and, and it's kind of the beast of hashtags in social media. That when you don't attribute something like that to yourself, because you didn't do pull it, you know, put your name or something into it, it can do its own thing. I, I do know that, like, I, I think just culturally, I think a lot, of pe a lot of people are more aware of like the value of crediting, even if it, you know, it doesn't need uh, or attribution. Um, but that, that's, you know, that sort of gets navel gazy in a way that, <laughs> um, that I don't know whether to entertain. <laughs> Does it? Do you feel it might lose some level of? its organic nature like in what way because you maybe you can tell this story did you intend for it to hit viral did you no. have a plan behind it like what's the doesn't seem like you exert any control around it right yeah and that, i mean that's the thing once you place something online and i i did talk uh a couple of years later or i can't I can't remember in the moment whether it was 2018 or uh, a different year, but around the time that church two started. Um, and I think I have the year wrong. Um, one of the things when I talked to uh, the two women, uh, Emily and uh, Hannah, who now uses the term, the name river, um, who, who started that hashtag, they, when I talked to them, they were like, this belong, you know, this isn't entirely ours anymore. And that, mm -hmm. um, whenever something is, uh, glommed onto, um, by the internet, the larger culture sort of, uh, sort of 
makes a claim to it. And, and I think that's sort of how these things work. And I do, mm-hmm. but I do also think that there's a bit of, um, uh, there's like all, all these different inter- interesting interplays between what, when something like that happens, when a com- communities, multiple plural communities form around something like this, what's the difference between a community and like uh, a following, like when someone follows a certain particular account or creator and what's the difference between community following and overall culture like all of these things are are sort of things that um my experience and being uh both a participant and an observer in this space for the past few years has made me be very (laughs) sort of introspective about it in that respect i guess it matters if you have some merch you know, these sweaters if you don't do it somebody's gonna steal it <laughs> i mean i like the the art around your podcast which we'll get to in a in a second mm-hmm. here uh i'd wear that t-shirt yeah ironically yeah, I, but uh <laughs> no i'd wear that t-shirt <laughs> yeah i i i do have some shirts i don't hawk them very hard i guess <laughs> <laughs> but we'll uh throw that in the show notes have you yeah. uh tracked the stats of it at all to oh, kind of track the uh, the use, uh, see if there's any uh, uh, trends that you've known? yeah yeah um, some of the tools that that I've been able uh, generally like um, right now the ones that I can recall at the at the top of my head like whenever you look on I think TikTok has been the biggest surprise just because it has generated so much exposure and. Uh, just that platform, I think, took everyone, including uh, Mark Zuckerberg, by surprise. <laughs> um, and you know, now a billion people use that use that app, um, and it's got somewhere around at this point 400 million impressions. There, um, there's around 45 to 50 thousand public posts on Instagram um, using the hashtag. Uh, it's got around a hundred thousand daily impressions on Twitter. Um, so TikTok like, is the is the beast. Yes, I mean TikTok I've heard is, of TikTok, but definitely not there. That is massive. Yeah, and I mean the interesting thing is like um, uh, John Piper's son Abraham Piper is a really right. really big on TikTok. Yeah. Has over a million followers. Uses the hashtag sometimes. Like. And I mean that that's that's an example. Like I I've no, not had any interaction, um, but it's something that you can stumble across and um, and you'll find a different uh, different people that are exploring different facets of deconstruction, um, which I know is the focus of 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 your series that you're working on. And I, um, and I think that that is really valuable because the num because the different perspectives that you can bring to this Hmm. um my my hope is that whatever this becomes long term um it won't just be some new liberal progressive version of Mm -hmm. what we learned in evangelicalism and white evangelicalism in particular Hmm. um because because if we're just carrying those same power structures and everything else forward then um then i'm not sure then i'm not sure we've we've done enough uh so 
the fact that there are multiple people using using terms like exvangelical um, to uh, to describe their perspectives and find like-minded people, then I hope that that uh, I hope that that continues because that's not some if it if everybody that was using it was just another cis white guy like me, then I think that would be uh, that wouldn't be as powerful. I think that's one of the criticisms of deconstruction, the mm. movement, mm-hmm. uh, the not so much the hashtag, but I mean, if if you could uh, uh, do demographic stats on that, that would be fascinating, fascinating. But you know, we we read, we see different influencers, I guess I could use that term, that are co-opting in many ways, or just people who are working through their own deconstruction, but it's typically been dominated by white folks, and probably because they're pulling out a white evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to echo you and the call to disrupt and dismantle power structures... We need far more voices and wider voices at the table to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's reflected in the current iteration, because I think historically, like all this kind of um, deconstruction, but by another name maybe, has been yeah. happening and happening. Mm-hmm. That the uh, our reality now is one that calls us into into disruption and perhaps leaving the whole thing. But I don't know if the contemporary movement has the right voices in it to do that. Um, It's hard to ask white people to pull yourself out of white supremacy if you are the prime benefactor of that at the same time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of internal work that needs to happen. And for white people like myself, like that is part of, uh, you know, uh, I think Tori Douglas's uh, work is perfectly named because they use the, the the podcast title "White Homework," and that's what a lot of it <laughs> boils down to: is white evangelicalism, by and large, perpetuates lots of lots of whiteness and and emphasizes it, um, and that is a that is should be a major part of it, and I think that's why. Even things like evangelical and uh, people that are sharing that, I, um, I, I think that's why you see this constant dialogue between terms like deconstruction and decolonizing, and what is, um, and what is the the best terms? What are the best types of communities? If it's just making white people more comfortable with, like, you know, having sex when they want to or not feeling, you know, that's. <laughs> That I've I've seen that criticism and it's like oh evangelicals just want to have premarital sex <laughs> like that's uh, um, supremely shallow. I see how you get there, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, I I know I'm you know that's just like banter on Twitter and places like that. Yeah. But um, but nonetheless, to your point, like if it is just going to perpetuate whiteness, then it's not it's not doing the doing what we socially need it to do. Um, so I think that is something that can never be really lost in the shuffle. Like, 
Yeah. I, you, you know, the challenge, as you say that, and it's great to hear, is there's no central voice, of course, to any of these. If, if there was, then it would cease to be the uh, a suitable vehicle for deconstruction of institutions. And mm-hmm. because of that, there is no central uh, voice or reason that says foundationally you have to disrupt these, these I'll use the word again, foundations mm-hmm. of white supremacy and patriarchy. Like mm-hmm. you, you could just keep rolling through and not ask those questions. And then I wrote down, I think I'll tweet it. Uh, you can deconstruct yourself right back into whiteness. And that, that does need to be uh, a major, a major part of it. And by no means does that mean that like, if, if someone is just looking for that part, if a white person in particular is looking for that part to be, one of the comfortable parts of deconstruction that's uh let me disabuse you of that notion like mm-hmm. as uh as another white person that's that has done some of this work and, and just recognizing it's going to be a lifelong type of thing and that you're gonna have to mm-hmm. uh, you know practice a lot of humility um but even so i think one of the things that that people find out when they keep that keep going um, through this process of deconstruction is that a big part of it is addressing that whiteness. And if it's and if you're a person of color, then then that also means understanding how you may have how you how you have been oppressed or or finding ways to connect to other parts of uh, your your heritage. Uh, but I can't speak to that. I can speak to what it means to address whiteness and how it's been perpetuated through white evangelicalism. And even in that respect, I'm still working through how to best do that. (laughs) And it's not just evangelicalism. Whiteness Mm -hmm. pervades all the institutional forms that have roots in in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, from those thinkers, all of them, all of them. And you must contend with those things and learn how you've been shaped and formed. And that's where I, I think a lot of uh, people of color are racialized minorities, at least, to figure out how you've been shaped and formed by this type of thinking and beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's one that calls you into an interrogation of your belief systems and that challenges your understanding of self and faith it challenges Mm -hmm. where all those things came from you need to have an alert moment like awareness needs to be lifted i think particular in in asian folks kind of caught in between in the racialized struggle there needs to be an alertness developed about your racialization on one hand but also how a lot of your traditions come out of white supremacy let's take a step back and talk about what catalyzed the hashtag? Yeah, I, I think really the, um, that's a great question. And I, and I think really it, it did start with this idea um, for a podcast that, that explored these things. And then the, actually the hashtag came from, came from that. But mm. essentially, it, just to really briefly summarize my own sort of experience yeah. in evan- white evangelicalism, uh, raised in the in the United Methodist Church, uh, the, what I us- how I usually describe that is that even though a lot of people can cons- um, 
consider that a more mainline tradition. It takes on a lot of uh, local flavor. So growing up in small town Indiana, um, it was a more conservative type church environment than, say, if you went to a UM church in downtown Chicago. Was really deep into youth group culture in the 90s, uh, you know, felt the call to ministry at the ripe old age of 17. Um, went to Indiana Wesleyan University, and um, the first full week of my freshman year is when 9-11 happened. Uh, and actually, that sort of changed the tenor of things. And that's where I felt sort of caught between this tension of developing my own initial first political, uh, you know, personal convictions and awakening, mm-hmm. so to speak, um, and was at odds with the majority conservative colleagues that I had in in the history department, which um, mm-hmm. one of the main teachers there was a Christian reconstructionist. Um, so like things like dominionist theology and things like that um, was very prevalent there and felt a lot of cognitive, cognitive dissonance um, because I was also studying like uh, Greek and taking church history classes. But nonetheless, I did, after all of that, I decided I had too much of a faith crisis to feel comfortable pursuing seminary, uh, worked full-time and went to grad school part-time um, and continued to wrestle with evangelicalism, trying to find out whether I could have a place in it. Um, studied, studied things like creation care, uh, which is like an ecological stewardship narrative uh, of theology in grad school and uh eventually like we were in a more in i had gotten married and my spouse and i were in a community a church community that was more conservative than we were though we we stayed for the reason that a lot of people stay which is that we loved the people there um Mm -hmm. but when that Mm -hmm. became untenable that was the last like evangelical community that i was a part of Mm -hmm. the reason why i ran through all of that is just to say um what really made me think about evangelicalism in in these in this way uh, was that both myself and some of my close friends and some of my friends that I knew just from uh, college and high school that were deeply involved in white evangelicalism um, in one facet or another had moved away had distance themselves from that church tradition that and that tradition that cultural tradition and all of everything that white evangelicalism entails and it touches every part of your life but we all had made these decisions to not continue that tradition and couldn't and i really wanted to be able to, to explore why we all left um And that was really the impetus of developing the show. But I mean, it took me another year and a half. Like we left that church in 2014. The first episodes of the podcast didn't happen until summer 2016. So I, you know, that, that idea germinated for a while. Um, But then just as part of trying to find a way to share things online, it was just a, uh, it was easy to, you know, try to turn it into a hashtag. And then those early months and things like that, um, people like my, like Chrissy Stroop and others that I met in those, in those periods, like we, we started using that hashtag to develop some of that community there. Then it just snowballed from there. 
Um, but really the hope uh, was just trying to uh, explore why we all left. That's a fascinating approach because it's really an expose and a capturing of stories. Uh, the catalyst is, is storytelling the why, which I find really, really neat because that's a different take than what I often see um, both in ministry, but you know, you can find it anywhere on social media that I'm reacting from a place of hurt. Mm. Someone wounded mm -hmm. me. Uh, they, they wounded me bad. I'm hurt. I'm mad. And yeah. then we can kind of dwell in that space and it can become toxic. That doesn't sound like that was your initial approach, but maybe, you know, were there wounds there that catalyzed a move out? Yeah. I, I mean, that, that to me was, was the interesting thing. And the reason why I thought podcasting would be a good medium for it is that, you know, I could have started what, I don't know, what was popular in 2016 medium. Like I could have done like a medium <laughs> publication um, or something like that that explored this in 1500 word posts that no one would read. But mm -hmm. the idea of having a conversation like this and letting someone tell their story and talk about that hurt um, in their own voice, in their own words, would just largely, you know, open-ended questions. That to me felt more, I don't know, it felt more real. It felt more uh, approachable. And so, yes, like that, I think that is one of the things that that does bind this community together is that it is a shared uh, familiarity with a lot of things like, you know, uh, people that in this in this subculture, which like I don't even I, I sort of uh, balk at calling it a subculture when it's when some people say it's 25% of the U S population, <laughs> like, like that's just a full blown culture. <laughs> um, no, evangelicalism. Yes. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so, so yeah, a lot of like, I would say that it, the thing that binds us a lot is, is like a, a sort of sense of shared, uh, shared traumas, like similar traumas sometimes. Um, and some, and you know, just, awareness of who the veggie tales are and DC talk and like, you know, some of this stuff that, that we all have these similar um, experiences in and that in and of itself is powerful. It does make you have to um, think through what the value is and whether it's long-term or whether it's more transitional. Does this mean that you stay in this, in this space forever? Or is it a, a space that, that is more like a triage center? And you shepherd people from where they're where they're processing this prior identity before they they move into an, another one. Um, and being more explicit and aware of that, I think, is is really valuable. So I sort of see a lot of you know my work uh, now as being open to letting people explore when they're in those early stages and they don't know, you know, they don't know what they believe or, um, 
or, or what have you, or what community they're looking for. They just know that they've left this one um, and they are no longer being fed. <laughs> That's a very churchy thing. No longer being fed there. <laughs> but there's, uh, you're, you're in pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're in pieces. Yeah. Blake Chastain on the podcast here who <laughs> said we all trauma bond around the veggie tales. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the Veggie Tales was the source of that trauma. <laughs> Phil Fisher oh, is so on Twitter cool. a lot. You can you can go <laughs> at mention him, the creator. <laughs> he's uh, and see what he thinks. <laughs> yeah, he's he's okay. But didn't uh, Metaxas uh, write for write for them? Yeah, yeah, briefly. Something weird. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Something weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw in the VeggieTales clip there. When you're bonding around shared either suffering or abuse, or you're just coming to a realization that you need to pick up the pieces, maybe you mm-hmm. don't actually. Maybe just walk away from it all. Like that makes sense. Just walk yeah. away from it all. But I think that there's also a peace within us. Call it whatever you want. Spirit of God, spirituality. And there's a peace that is still grounded in some type of connection to something greater. It's a lot of somethings. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the pieces. We don't have previews. I don't want to say answers, but we don't have pathways into what might be a new thing. Like right. At the top, we talked about how, oh, big deal if we do this initial, it would be faux deconstruction. If all you did was iterate yourself right back into whiteness, for example, or right back mm-hmm. into the next progressive thing. So what is the next thing? I wonder if we can spend some time now, we'll just switch gears and spend the rest of our time talking about some previews. Like, I, I don't know if there's a whole roadmap there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you can do that. I think it's unique to the land that you're situated on and the people who are in it. But what kind of practices, what kind of directions or pathways are you seeing thematically through both the work that you're doing on the podcast, but also you're filtering a lot of the key trends within the hashtag itself, right? What are you seeing that's giving life? Yeah, I, well, I think uh, that's a great question. And I think one of the things you are seeing is, uh, I think the key word you used was practice. Like, it's not necess- it's not what people aren't looking for a new belief system Hmm. um, because the one that was foisted on them or the one that they developed was one that eventually buckled under the pressure um, of this expectation that it was supposed to give you all the answers that it was supposed to guide your personal development in a particular way, um, mold you into this person, but you people break the mold all the time. And if like cis white guys can't fit into it, like mm-hmm. that, that difficulty is compounded when you're not a cis white guy. <laughs> um, 
that's why I think you're seeing uh, a lot of this, uh, a lot of exploration of things like the Enneagram and things like tarot and astrology. Mm. Um, these are broad, like spiritual practices that I think are just gaining a lot of popularity on social media in general, uh, other things like witchcraft and things like that. You're, you're seeing those things be utilized because they are practices that uh, draw you more back to yourself than to this idea of a perfect God that despises you mm, <laughs> when gross. you don't ref- when you don't reflect that same perfection. Um, I think you're seeing the uh, other people maybe discovering some of the spiritual practices of their of their own ancestors. Yes, um, yes. and that is extremely valuable. You, there are things like um, uh, the Mystic Soul Project, uh, which which is POC led and POC focused. Um, talking to those things, you have uh, other other writers and. And workers uh, like Caitlin Curtis, who talks about indigenous um, indigenous belief and what that means to to reclaim that or to discover that for oneself um, after leaving evangelicalism. So I, I do think it um, it is that emphasis on practice. I don't think that we're going to see something that leads in one particular path. Like, I think that was, in in retrospect, maybe that's what was happening with, say, like the emergent church hmm. 20 years ago, is like they wanted to move evangelicalism forward progressively um, through like moderate steps. And that, um, you know, I wasn't, I was a kid back then. So like, but I'm, I'm sure that that was something that they, that they fought for and that they thought through and all of that. Um, but I, I think what will happen now is that hopefully we can develop these, uh, acceptable coalitions where we can understand one another's differing theological positions, but still affirm everyone's autonomy, um, have some shared values, uh, in in regards to autonomy and, um, the value of human uh, humanity and spiritual practice, uh, but not insist that you have to have the, this set of supernatural beliefs, Hmm. um, or still believe in the divinity of Jesus. Like I'm not, I don't think it necessarily needs to stay a Christian thing. And I don't think it is. Um, you have people that are interested in spiritual practices and those that just aren't. And I think being non-religious is clearly an option as, as well. Um, but I think by and large, this, this like post-evangelical, ex-evangelical landscape will, um, people will disperse into multiple, um, multiple mm-hmm. traditions uh, and root themselves there. Um, but Though, but I think white evangelicalism has proven that it, it's pretty hostile to anyone that doesn't <laughs> uh, toe the party line. Well, if you don't have suitable answers, then that's a threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about, you didn't use this word, but uh, pathways 
that where deconstruction could take you some religious, some spiritual, some not. Would you say one of the pathways of deconstructions is actually pulling yourself out of Christianity? Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I think that is a legitimate path. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. To me, the question, are you still a Christian, is mm. one of the less interesting questions on this <laughs> de- <laughs> on on this sort of deconstruction journey mm. that that your listeners that I'm on you know that um that well I mean are you still a Christian like that is still limiting limiting you to what you think about the Apostles Creed or yeah or or the Bible what do you mean yeah <laughs> and I mean, we uh, mostly have that dominant picture in our mind when we mean that Right. Yeah. And to me, it's the, the, the more interesting question is what, what's giving you, what makes you flourish? Like what is affirming, affirming you mm-hmm. and what is making you uh, yeah. value the, the world and the people around you? Um, because if, if your, if your beliefs aren't serving you, then why, why are you serving them? I'm, I'm <laughs> if that makes if that makes any sense like if they're not uh, permitting your the possibility for you to live out your whole self as you mm-hmm. said to flourish then it's not giving life right and i mean jesus talked about abundant life and mm. did did we live an abundant life in evangelicalism mm. and if you mm. did then why the hell are so many people leaving like <laughs> Well, it's certainly created, in my argument, across many intersections, but the primary ones around races, you're just never going to fit if you're not white for white evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. But where's the, to get churchy now, mm-hmm. I'd understand the Christianity baggage associated with it. Uh, can you deconstruct yourself? I, I mean, of course you can, of course you can. But where does Jesus fit in all of that? Which is like... I have to preface this. I don't know why I have to, but we have to because it's okay. It's the it's the it, it can be interpreted as the typical evangelical response to um, alarm bells going off of oh my gosh, you just worked yourself into uh, something profane. <laughs> Insert profane <laughs> thing here. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, uh, you're advocating for this. And sometimes the answer perhaps is yes. Um, but other times, I'm not sure if that would be my my take, but what are you seeing in terms of, okay, Christianity, the religious stuff, we've heard that within evangelical constraints as well, but mm-hmm. that language. Right. Uh, where does that fit into the work of deconstruction out of the thing? Are you out ofing Jesus too? Yeah, Uh I mean, for I, I will speak for myself, and I'm not in regards to Jesus. I think, I think that for myself personally, I will always find uh, value in in a lot of Jesus's teachings. Um, and that's not, I'm, I'm not. That's not me dodging the question. I, I will elaborate here. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that, that was means an answer. That was. <laughs> I mean, that was. It counts. But, sorry, <laughs> okay. but uh, even even to elaborate a little bit more, um, for one of the 
key sort of uh, things that that guides my ethics is is actually some teaching that that I received uh, in college about the what's called the Philippian hymn, and that's in Philippians two. Uh, this passage that in Philippians two, it's in it's in verse. It's not in a paragraph because they believe that it's, uh, and some scholars believe it was an early Christian hymn. And it talks about how um, Christ took on, uh, didn't want, didn't seek equality with God, but took on um, the visage of a servant. I'm, I'm messing up the, the language. I'm sorry, but he took on the image of a servant and, um, and served people. Um, and that was something that, that was deeply imprinted uh, on me. Uh, mm. And it was this idea, mm. it, it's this idea, you know, very churchy of kenosis of self-emptying. And I think one of the things that someone, uh, someone like me can, can take from that is that, that is recognizing things in a different language, like privilege. Like that's not something, you know, but abdicating or being aware of white privilege and and even though it's not something you can give up um being cognizant of it and working and working to address that in your own life and in society um and that is something that that i think i'll always carry with me even as my theological beliefs shift and change and then i mean other elements of of uh, Christ's teachings in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, those teachings that I, I think remain radical. Yeah, I would agree. I would. I am compelled by Jesus, mm-hmm. and I press against the notion that we have to discard Christianity. That we certainly have to discard Jesus. Like no, because I believe they're both worth reclaiming. Uh, I don't know how much of it is privileged to say I can just walk away, but I want to say that we can reclaim these things because what we have now, the expression rooted in the center of privilege connected to empire, that's not the way things ought to be. And so there's a little bit of fight in there, but that doesn't... I mean, I say that on one hand, where on the other hand... If you gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> like, right? You don't, you don't gotta stay. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the tension, right? Is that some people mm-hmm. even, even if they, you know, <laughs> respect Jesus a lot, he seems like a great guy. Your followers are kind of crappy, and we're not. And I, I was traumatized by them, and I can't be in community with them. And recognizing the validity of that. Um. I think is an important thing that a lot of people need to make peace with uh, if they are in, you know, working in Christian spaces that, that even, even despite all that, despite yeah, or uh, relationally there, yeah, there are just some people that it just can't, it's a, it's a non-starter. Um, but I, I agree. Uh, and I, one of the, one of the things that I think makes deconstruction so personally difficult is the is coming to terms with the fact that the type of christianity that was presented to us as essentially eternal uh immutable unchanging Mm. is a very particular 
historical mm-hmm. expression mm-hmm. of Christianity. And there are a lot of other pathways mm-hmm. um, to take. Um, but we were taught that those were all, they all missed the mark. <laughs> sure. And yeah. Um, yeah. And like, if you can reclaim that, I think there is, there is power there. Um, there is a lot to do there. I'm reticent to use the, I'm reticent to, to say that even though I declare it, I declare it. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. because it's also a term that was used in our traditions, like leaders in evangelicalism would have called like come on back. Like there's still room for you at the table. There's, mm-hmm. there's options for you. God won't forget you. And all those things are true, but just not in that package. And yeah. to use and reiterate the language that raises the hair on the back of your head and, you know, is tinged with pieces of power and future abuse uh, it, it's hard to say, no, 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 I, but not that kind, the better kind. I'm wondering, as we wrap here, you gave us examples of some of the larger trends that you're noticing that you've picked up from this movement, Exvangelical. Let's bring it closer to home in community, your own practices, perhaps, but also ones in your community. What does community, church, if I can use that term, let's use it, let's reclaim it. Uh, (laughs) What does it look like? Like, What are those practices that we talked about look like closer to home? Yeah, yeah. Um, Great question. Uh, I think what a lot of these spaces if they are going to be primarily made of people that have come out of evangelicalism uh, they need to be sort of explicit about their purpose um and why i say that is just uh i i help administer a facebook group with over ten thousand people in it now um and that's a difficult sort of task to the how the group has been moderated has changed as as it's as the group has changed but one of the things that that we um as a moderation or moderation team have to do is really try to ensure that things like uh emotional triggers and uh are uh accommodated as as best as possible um that we don't let sort of uh, whiteness go stay centered, um, even though even though a, a big portion of the of the group is is white, um, the group is two thirds female or, or more, and the moderation team uh, cis men are the minority intentionally. Those sort of things need to be need to be important, but a lot of times whenever these spaces are primarily online. I think the value from being explicit uh, is really uh, is heightened is because we're communicating primarily by text um, and we have no idea how the algorithms 
um, that are opaque to the user are affecting what is being surfaced for folks. Mm. So like there's there's lots of lots of things at play there. But I think the reason why you need to be explicit is just that some places need to have a lot of rules or say this is the intent of this space is to be as safe as possible. It's not a freewheeling space where you can say what you know where we don't have that many moderation rules. There can be spaces like that too, <laughs> but it's just not. Uh, all of them need to be need to be explicit. Um, so I think that that is something, and I think if for for communities. Uh, church communities or other communities that are looking to to integrate people from this from this background or other similar backgrounds, they also need to to have a bit of sensitivity and understanding about what someone may what someone's reservations about participating in another spiritual community might be. And uh, I think I think that awareness is growing. Um, and I mean I've. I, I had a, a pastor who was extremely, uh, extremely understanding of my experience. Um, and, and my experience there was better for it. Um, so like, those are sort of the two paths if, uh, that I think of specifically is the ones that are uh, like, whether it's something specifically made of and for people who have been traumatized or are ex-evangelical um, and for those that are ex-evangelical or however they self-identify uh, and wanting to participate in a broader community. Thank you for sharing those two ideas. I think it's interesting that, and confirm this for me, when you think of your community close to home, you're thinking primarily of online communities, maybe not the hashtag itself, but uh, p- people who are being brought together through the power of the interwebs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is, um, I think there is a lot of value there, and I think it's not. Um, that's probably. I think that that position has has probably been more accelerated and accentuated over the last two years certainly um yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah just as as churches and and other forms of community have moved online um but i don't ever i don't really want to discredit the sort of um role that identity mm-hmm. exploration and community exploration um has uh in online spaces just because uh it's it's not uh, it's not as clear as as a distinction as a as it may once have been um those sort of online relationships that you foster online and that are mediated uh through online platforms can be very meaningful mm-hmm. um that's not to say that the, like the local church is 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 assigned to history um right now for me like we we moved during the pandemic uh we were uh and so we don't have that uh that fast of life right now we may again someday but we don't right now let's finish our time with 
a little bit of sharing with your work. Um, you have a book coming up and two podcasts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. One, uh, my my primary podcast is Exvangelical, and then I have a season-based show that um, is called Powers and Principalities. That first season was about white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. Mm. Um, and then the uh, Exvangelical typically comes out twice a month. Uh, I got a bit off that cycle in October for various reasons. But, uh, but yeah, those are the two podcast and then i'll be uh it was just announced i'm working on a book that will be published in uh, i believe 2023 so it's just thank you what's the book about it's about what we've talked about here uh it's about um recognizing the that people have been leaving evangelicalism for a long time um but also the last few years uh, things have been fueled and accelerated because of what we've been, how we've been able to connect online and mm-hmm. what will come next because uh, after the Trump administration and the insurrection mm-hmm. here in the United States, um, I'm thinking that we've reached the end of what I call white evangelical hegemony um, and that the religious discussion and social discussion uh, will not and should not be dominated or led by white evangelical voices in the future. That power grass won't go away. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. It'll be fascinating to get the data for your book. Somebody will have it of how many people came back. I know America is a little different than, than many places in Canada where we're still slow. Um America's a little bit faster in, in coming back together for some churches, maybe not all. But uh, yeah, I'll be really fascinated to know and read that in your book of if you put it in, how many people mm-hmm. actually came back, if that is an indicator of the collapse you speak to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'll definitely be, be working some of that in as well. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to share or point listeners to uh, that you're creating? Other than your sweet T-shirt merch, <laughs> hashtag Xvangel. I'm, I'm sure, swear I've seen it. Yeah, uh, yeah. You can find you know links to merch and everything at the uh, at the website for the podcast xvangelicalpodcast.com. Um, I also do a newsletter called the Post Evangelical Post because um, all my ideas begin as puns. Um, so that's at postevangelicalpost.substack.com. Um, there's free and paid, uh, things there I'm doing, focusing on that, uh, instead of Patreon right now, 25% of, uh, of net revenue after processing fees and things like that is donated to, uh, groups that, uh, serve communities that have been harmed by white evangelicalism. Uh, so you can find out more about that, um, at the post evangelical post. 